This evening's episode of Mouthful is from the archives, originally airing on April 10th, 2011. Coming up, Mouthful welcomes Anne Zimmerman, author of An Extravagant Hunger, a narrative exploration of MFK Fisher's passionate years. At a time when Fisher is misunderstood by the current community of so-called foodies, along comes Zimmerman's beautiful book to reveal the true power of Fisher's prose and life to a new generation. That's ahead on Mouthful, smart talk about food, wine, and farming with your host, Michelle Anna Jordan, on KRCBFM Radio 91. Good evening and welcome to Mouthful, the wine country's most delicious hour. It's Michelle Anna Jordan. Hope you've had a good weekend. Hope you made it to a farmer's market. Um, I wasn't able to go to the Santa Rosa Farmer's Market yesterday, but I spent a really long time at this basketball farmer's market today, and it was just glorious. Everything just smelled so fresh. And there were farmers there that I didn't think were going to start the market quite so soon, but uh, Dave Legro of Bumblebee, I think it's Bumblebee, seafood bumblebee fish he was back and he just had mm, he had some of that fabulous flounder he had some crawfish from new orleans he had some jumbo shrimp from new orleans and he talked i'm going to try to have him on sometime soon he talked about um really interesting plan you've probably heard that salmon we may actually have a salmon season this year the salmon populations are looking pretty healthy and he's thinking about starting a salmon CSA. And I just think that is such a great idea. And he wants to do it so that he lets you know when he's coming back in, you meet him at the dock and you buy the salmon right off the boat. And it doesn't really get, it doesn't get any fresher than that unless you go out yourself. Um, anyway, I will keep you posted about that. Um, it, it was just great, a great day. Ken Orchard was there with carrots. There hadn't been any carrots there last week. Um, Nancy Skull had just some of her gorgeous asparagus. I've never had better asparagus than what she grows. Um, almost everybody had eggs. This, we talked about that last week when Paula Downing was on. There are now finally enough eggs at the farmer's market, so you never have to worry about running out of eggs and having to buy them in a grocery store again. Um, and I want to tell you, speaking of farmer's markets, there's a new feature at my blog, Eat This Now, which you find at the Press Democrat website, um, you just go to pressdemocrat.com, click on blogs, and you'll see me. I'm the second one listed. But once a week, um, or twice a week, until probably the middle of May, I'll be featuring one particular farmer's market. Um, it will be called Fresh from Our Farmers, and then the name of the city after that. And it will be a regular feature, and it will also then show up in the town section. So if it's Petaluma, it'll show up in the Petaluma section and um, if you have something about a farmer's market, if you have a question, if you have something you want me to be sure to check out, just you know, leave a comment at the blog site or send me an email. We always give the email address at the end of Mouthful, but if you want to write it down now, it's catsmilk at sonic.net. So it's, I think it's going to be a great season for farmer's markets. I'm excited about all that's happening. I'm also excited about tonight's show. Um, there is a wonderful book. Um, and I'll just tell you a little story because... When I, when I saw the title, 
an extravagant hunger, I immediately thought of Malcolm Gladwell and his book Blink because he has that concept of thin slicing where in a second you can get a big the big picture uh, and that that reaction is as valid as sort of the slower, um, more logical way of getting to understand something. The second I read the title, An Extravagant Hunger, The Passionate Years of MFK Fisher, I knew that the writer Ann Zimmerman had captured Mary Frances. Um, so many writers and so many people in the food world have misunderstood her. And along comes someone from a younger generation than Mary Frances and has, I, I suspect, captured the essence of one of the 20th century's greatest writer. And on that note, welcome to Mouthful. Oh, thank you. That's such, such kind words. <laughs> well, it, the title is so perfect. It really is. I worked long and hard on that title. I have to admit that I, um, the book was originally concepted and sold with a title that I, I didn't like. I've never been particularly good at titles. And um, it got all the way to about this time last year when my manuscript was due in about eight weeks. And all of a sudden, I just knew in the pit of my stomach that the title I had wasn't right. What, will you tell us what that was? Oh, man. I can't believe I'm going to say it on the radio. Um, there's this there's this piece of MFK Fisher writing that comes from the gastronomical me and when she's just arrived in Paris for the first time in 1929 and she's 21 years old and newly married and she's talking about Paris and how the sights and sounds are and tastes are new and, and amazing and that she was young and in love and wrapped in a passionate mist. And somewhere along the line, someone got the great idea that we could sell the book with the title A Passionate Mist, which I never really liked, but I always sort of figured out I would deal with later. And then I just got very lucky to have um, such a great publisher, Counterpoint, who, when I came to them this time last year and said, I just really don't feel like that title is right for the book at all. Um, it's not evocative enough. It's not interesting enough. And it doesn't, as you said, really capture her. No, it doesn't really tell you anything uh, about It doesn't her. tell you anything. And so they were um, they were cool, but they volleyed the ball right back to me and said, okay, uh, tell us what you want the title to be. So I spent probably, it felt like a, a long time. It was ultimately probably only a week just carrying this notebook with me everywhere and writing down senses and words and colors and trying to think of, of what I really wanted the title to be. And then I kind of just had this light bulb moment that extravagant mm -hmm. hunger just was it. Well, so. It's perfect, and, and it's perfect for several reasons. And one of them that I think immediately, that allowed me, say, to thin slice mm -hmm. the book is so many people mistakenly call her a food writer. And it happened to her her whole life. And people would say it to her, and she'd say, I don't think of myself as a food writer. And what I've always said is she writes about hunger. She right. doesn't write about food. She writes about hunger. So you go just straight to the heart of her writing. So right. I just think it's, a, you know, a light bulb Thank experience you. is what it should be. Well, it's funny because uh, that you mentioned, you know, her ambivalence about the title of food writer because you're you're 100% right, as you know. But um, it was so interesting because I didn't realize until fairly far into the book the task I had set myself up for uh -huh. because, you know, she is she's a food philosopher. She's a life philosopher. You know, she doesn't mm -hmm. to say to call her a food writer is completely um Completely inaccurate, though I understand why people put that label on her. It's really so, so, so much more, and that's what I've tried to capture in the book is just her hungers and, and how those hungers were fed through her life and how that led to her creative, you know, blossoming. So, What was it that initially drew 
you to Mary Frances? That's an interesting, uh, interesting story. I went to college in McMinnville, Oregon, which is not unlike, um, you know, going to college in the wine country of mm-hmm. California. Yeah, so um, it's Pinot Noir country. Pinot there. Noir country, yes. And so I had, I had heard her name. Uh, in in my life there but then I went to graduate school in San Diego and I almost immediately disliked it I just didn't didn't graduate school didn't jive with me the culture of Southern California didn't jive with me um but I was going to class and, and doing my thing and one day I was in the library um gathering books to do a paper on Zelda Fitzgerald, or so mm-hmm. I thought. And I was standing in the library, and I saw the rows and rows and rows of books about the Fitzgeralds and knew that in order to write a graduate school paper, I was going to have to read all of them and then develop my own new theory and then write the paper, and that that was going to take a long time. And Fisher is very close to Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. And there was this very small Fisher section, maybe only a dozen books, um, but I recognized the name, and I pulled out a book that had beautiful black and white photos of MFK Fisher, um, you know, in France and in Italy and on on the deck of a home, just sort of luxuriously leaning back after a good meal. And, and initially, that was what sparked me. I just kind of wanted to know more about this woman that was in the photographs. Um, but what happened next is kind of interesting. I, I checked out a handful of MFK Fisher books and took them back to my little apartment in San Diego. And that weekend, a huge fire fire erupted in Southern California. And Oh, that really bad one. One of the really yeah. bad ones. Exactly. And, um, I became trapped, not in an unsafe way, but just the air quality was really poor and they kept shutting school day after day after day. And I was basically alone in my tiny little apartment for an entire week with a couple of bags of groceries and my MFK Fisher books. And by the time I came out, I was just, you know, completely in love with her as a subject and as a kind of character at that point and in love with her work. And it just really... Um, it kind of changed my life. So that's a great story. It's 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 kind of phoenix out of the ashes. You know, I was in this mm-hmm. really bad point, and um, you know, really, uh, what happened was that reading her work just really told me how important it was to take some time out for myself. And I wasn't feeling very happy, and I wasn't feeling very good about myself. But that that she taught me that if I didn't nourish myself, nobody else was going to. Mm-hmm. So I kind of changed my whole philosophy of living and eating and I would spend all you know all this time on Sunday afternoons cooking these big meals that then I would take in Tupperwares to my graduate school classes and all the other students thought I was nuts they couldn't figure out why I wasn't eating takeout and how I found the time to do this but I just I I realized that if I didn't invest in myself in that small little way mm-hmm. no one was going to and and it was just this very simple but very profound thing that could bring me both a lot of pleasure and um, just improve my life all the way around. Mm-hmm. So she would be thrilled. With oh, that story. thank you. She would, she would be thrilled. She, re- she would be thrilled with that it's, story. It's always fun to talk to people who actually met her because, of course, I I didn't. I am. Yeah. You know, people always every once in a while I'll get emails and and people will say, "Did you know her?" And I have to kind of embarrassingly admit that I think she died in 1992, so I was you know a 14 year old or something mm-hmm. like that. So. So it's always very meaningful when people who know compliment me like that. And it's, you know, it's not, I don't think you should be embarrassed about that. You know, people write, I mean, people reach so far back into history mm-hmm. to write about people. And your lives actually overlapped. Right. And there's a little bit of magic about that, I think. Right. And I've always, I just have always felt like that I saw a story that maybe other people didn't. You mm-hmm. know, MFK Fisher wrote so much about her own life. I mean, mm-hmm. most of her work is, is autobiographical. Yeah. But I still, my my inside, 
voice kind of from the very beginning told me that there was a deeper story that wasn't being told. And I've always sort of felt compelled, you know, to dig through that and, uh-huh. and tell it. So. And, what, and what is, what can you tell us about that? Uh, well, I think the, the big thing was that, you know, she wrote all of this this beautiful work, um, but I always felt like it was just really tinged with sadness, and mm-hmm. I never quite understood what the sadness was. You know, and we're talking at a, at, when I was an innocent neophyte reader where I had not read very much MFK Fisher. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, perhaps I read The Gastronomical Me, and you know that she had Al Fisher as a husband, and then you know you that she had Tim Parrish as a husband, but you never know what happened, how yeah. she, you know, got from, from one man to the other. And then you know that Tim died, but you never know what happened. Yeah. And I just always, um, I wanted to know more and I, and I wasn't, to be totally frank, I wasn't always satisfied with the answers I got. I wanted mm-hmm. to know from her what happened. Uh-huh. And that really was what inspired me to go uh, to the Schlesinger Library on the Radcliffe campus and mm-hmm. read her actual papers and mm-hmm. work with her letters to see if I could find out from her what the real story mm-hmm. was. How did reading those letters compare to filling in those gaps to, say, reading Last House, mm-hmm. which was a posthumous collection, which I thought was extremely haunting, yeah. and it filled in some of the gaps? I think the biggest thing was, and what I um, what I was so amazed by was, you know, she wrote, well, she wrote so much throughout her entire life, but, you know, that first year, 1929, when she went to France with Al Fisher, she wrote sometimes five and six letters a day, multiple pages long. And so she really, to hear kind of how she felt in the moment as it was all Mm -hmm. happening is different than hearing a reflection of what Mm -hmm. happened. So, but what's interesting about MFK Fisher is that she, I think was very, I mean, you could tell me, but she was very um, smart and, and very sly. And so she, it really did take um, a lot of research from all different points of her life to kind of get these little details that you could, you know, weave together into the right story. Because there were certainly pieces from, I think it's in last house where she writes about this meal that she had on the train from, um, going into Paris on their on her very first day in France and how that was the most important meal she ever mm-hmm. ate. And she gives all of these very vivid details that, that had not been in any of the letters yeah. that she wrote. So she was she had a seemingly um good memory and and her time in France I think, you know, was very important to her. So she it was alive in her mind. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about what was happening? between her and Al Fisher during that time that she doesn't really tell until right. much, much later. Um, well, that uh, is another fascinating story. Um, you know, she was pretty mum. Admittedly, she was pretty mum even in her letters about what was going on mm-hmm. between the two of them. But that silence, in a way, was what um, what gave me the clue that, that maybe not everything was as perfect as it seems Mm -hmm. because she wouldn't write very much about him in any of the letters and then she would just kind of dash off two lines like Al's great everything's wonderful we're so much in love and you know at one point I thought who writes like that who writes you know we're so much in love unless you're trying to convince yourself and somebody else of the fact that you're so much Mm -hmm. in love so I kind of pieced a lot of things together from the silences but then the the kind of linchpin of my understanding um of the fact that her marriage with Al was not happy, um, aside from things that she wrote later in her life, Mm -hmm. was going to UCLA. And at the UCLA library um, are the papers of Lawrence Clark Powell, Mm -hmm. who was a friend of both Al Fisher and MFK Fisher. And there, 
both there and in the Smith College collection that belonged to Al Fisher are some letters from friends of theirs that just speak pretty frankly about about the fact that they didn't they never acted like a couple in love they seemed um al seemed disinterested in mary Frances, and mary Mm -hmm. Frances seemed like she was kind of trying to please him but was um and successful in doing that and kind of the most damning um was this revelation that they had a nearly non-existent sexual life together so that and i i that had not really been I think in in other portrayals of MFK Fisher's life in France, it's been very romantic. Like, oh, here's this young Mm -hmm. couple. They go to France. They're in love. You know, she starts writing about food and it's just, you know, big romance. And um, that's not what happened. And I think it's inaccurate to tell people that that's what happened. (laughs) Now, my understanding, I think you have done a lot more research about this. And, and know much more about it than I do. So perhaps I'm hoping maybe you have some of the pieces that are missing for me. Sure. It seemed to me that she was in love when they started out. I don't know why he married her. She seemed to be in love with him and he seemed to be sexually put off by her. That, no, that's been what yeah. I, that's been what I felt. And I thought that right there has to have just shattered her heart. No, you're you're very astute. I think that that that's a very good summary of what happened. And um, I've thought a lot about this because um, because there are so many different elements to their story. You know, there one is the fact that they even got married to begin with, but then the next one would be that they got married and left and went to a different country. And it yeah. would seem maybe that you would be inclined to stick close to home uh, if you were marrying someone you didn't know very well mm-hmm. and and that type of thing. But um, the nearest that the nearest that I've been able to piece together is I think that she was I think she was in love with him, but perhaps in love with him in the way that we are all in love with our very first love. You mm-hmm. know, it's just like the biggest and best, most amazing thing that's ever happened. But um, it's not based in any sort of reality yeah. or any sort of experience mm-hmm. about what that means. Um, and I think that that was I think that was probably her driving force for him. I think that he. Um, you know, Al Fisher is such an interesting, you know, person in this book. And he admittedly was somebody that was not the most interesting person when I started the book and now has become very fascinating mm-hmm. to me. And and part of the reason is is for this odd sort of personality that he seems to have where he I I think he sort of wanted to own Mary Frances. You know, he wanted to possess her. He want he didn't want somebody else to have her. Uh-huh. He wanted to have her. But when when it came right down to it, to being a husband, to being a lover, to being a partner, you're right. He didn't want he didn't he want anything interested. to do with, it, with her. And he was beyond that. I mean, you know, not interested and in, not interested in trying either. Yeah. You know, like no um, sort of kind of thought process that said, "Well, I married this woman, and you know, we mm-hmm. went, we stood in front of our parents, and we got married, and then we took this big trip, and now we're supposed to be living together as husband and wife." I should figure this out. There was no. None of that. Yeah, and, you know, you could make a lot of assumptions about that, but he then goes on to marry someone else. He married, you know, Alice, like you said, he's so fascinating. He married, I think, two or three more times. Um, One of the things, oh, I wish I could remember the title of the book, and his second wife was a student of his from Smith, and after they divorced, she wrote this Romana Clef um, novel about a professor at Smith who teach who sleeps with most of his students and then turns up dead one day. And it's I ordered this copy. I wish I could remember the title. Um, and it comes to me, and it's just the typical dime store novel uh-huh. kind of size, but it has um, 
a, a fireplace poker, you know, kind of tool that's, you know, covered in blood. And that's the, that's the cover is this gruesome sort of professor that's been murdered by one of his female students. And um, he was, uh, he, let's just put it this way. He didn't have, um, none of his earlier problems, sexual problems were were evident in his later life. He was quite the philanderer. That's so interesting. We're going to take a little musical break and come back with more talk about MFK Fisher and the wonderful book, An Extravagant Hunger. You're listening to an archive episode of Mouthful that originally aired on April 10th, 2011 on KRCB-FM, Radio 91. Peu m'importe comment il se nomme S'il est un homme, un homme, un homme Je n'exige pas un Apollon Qui s'abrouillait dans les salons Ni un type fort comme Samson Pour vous que j'ai un mate en bon Il n'a pas besoin d'être un milliardaire Qu'il soit bon ou somme égale Il n'a pas besoin d'être un grand lumière Star du cinéma ni prince royal Je cherche un bon un homme qu'il s'appelle Pierre au pôle aux hommes pour qu'il donne son maximum. Je cherche un homme, un homme, un homme. Some movie star, a Texas oil man, or a French marquis doesn't have to be handsome as a picture. An ordinary guy is all right with me. Je cherche un homme, un homme, un homme qui s'appelle Pierre Paul. The book we're talking about this evening here on Mouthful is An Extravagant Hunger, The Passionate Years of MFK Fisher by Ann Zimmerman. It's a beautiful cover. Um, I'm going to talk about the cover. Can I tell you about the cover? Yes, tell me about the cover. Um, Because it is so beautiful. And I know what I think I know what it refers to. Uh, Well, yes. So the, so the, the cover is, for those of you that can't see it, you should go look it up. It's a gorgeous cover of Tangerines, um, which is an homage to an essay in Servant Fourth called Borderlands, in which MFK Fisher writes about broiling little sections of tangerine on the radiator mm-hmm. in um, 
Stroudsburg, where she's living with Al Fisher. And, and it's just really one of the most sensual, beautiful. I mean, there's so much MFK Fisher work, but this is one of the very first pieces I ever read. And I still think it is just, you know, probably my all-time favorite. But what's really amazing um, is that the artwork for this book was done by a woman named Laura Parker, who lives in San Francisco. And she was just an amazing artist to work with. And she... Um, painted from real tangerines about this time last year and did several different versions of the cover for me to pick and all of the writing on the back of the book is mfk fisher prose oh fabulous and so she um she's just a great artist and if you're um in the area all of her work is displayed at ensaladas in san anselmo these, oh, right. That's these what she, huge yes, large scale kind of portraits yes. of fruits and vegetables so it's just one of my favorite parts of the book and I just essentially you find I just it? have yeah. to read this. It was then that I discovered how to eat little dried sections of tangerine. My pleasure in them is subtle and voluptuous and quite inexplicable. I can only write how they are prepared. In the morning, in the soft, sultry chamber, sit in the window peeling tangerines, three or four. Peel them gently. Do not bruise them as you watch soldiers pour past and past the corner and over the canal towards the watched Rhine. Separate each plump, little pregnant crescent. If you find the kiss, the secret section, save it for Al. It's just like, it's so beautiful. You know, regardless of her relationship with with Al and how that turned out, I think that, you know, that's a a beautiful passage. (laughs) It is. And, you know, if she had been really happy with Al, we might not have her beautiful work because so one and one of the things that for me anyway has always made her work so compelling is that longing Mm -hmm. that's inherent in it and you know i make um i do the same thing with tangerines after reading (laughs) it i don't have a radiator just put them on a dry pan in the oven in a really low oven until their skins crack off and they're so good i've never done that but i had i was in new york last week uh for a book reading or two and i had a broiled uh, half of a grapefruit, mm-hmm. and it was just divine. But you're you're so right. I mean, I think that one of the big things that I learned from um, from looking at all of the letters at the library was the idea, you know, that you know, she was 21 years old in 1929 when she went to France, and she couldn't work, both because she was an American and because she was a woman, and she attended some art classes, but Al went off to school all day, or he was at the library, and she really had nothing to do. She had no mm-hmm. house to take care of. They lived in a board house where all the meals were provided and so she was lucky enough to just be able to sort of roam the streets and she would go sit in coffee houses or she would go to museums but she would also go to farmers markets and go look in the patisseries and the tea houses and then she would come home and she would write these long letters describing every single thing that she tasted to her family and I think that um if she that was her writer's practice. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't realize that it was at the time, but um, I think she was also occasionally trying to write fiction or trying to write other other pieces of, of prose. But I think that those letters were really um, that longing for family and kind of longing of, for a connection with Al while describing all of this stuff that she was seeing around her. That was, that was how she got her start. Mm-hmm. So what happened next? So we, we have this really sad relationship between her and Al. Um, basically, no, it was not a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And here's this beautiful, voluptuous, very sensual woman. Yeah. What happened? What happened? So, uh, 
Al and Mary Frances lived in France for three years, and when they came back to California, it was the midst of the Great Depression, and he couldn't find a job. Again, she still could not work. They were living with her parents, or um, if they weren't directly with her parents, living in a little shack in Laguna Beach that her parents owned. So I think it was a pretty debilitating time for both of them. You know, Al couldn't provide for her. She, you know couldn't help and saw him sort of drifting farther and farther and farther away and uh, then what happened is that she fell in love with the neighbor and his name was Tim Parrish he was also married and they started first as friends um, from the couples were friends mm-hmm. and then um, there's a lot of lore surrounding exactly what happened next but um, they became they became lovers and she then uh, continued to write these pieces about food to show to him. He mm-hmm. was a great appreciator of food. He knew how to cook and he loved food sort of at the same level that she did as this pleasurable sensual experience. And they ended up, um, what happened next is fascinating. The two of them actually ran off to Europe with his mother, which sounds odd, but it was under the guise that Mary Frances would be Mrs. Parrish's traveling companion yeah, did on a trip I, abroad. Was I correct? And I got this impression that somehow Al Fisher pushed her to do that. Well, I think he certainly, you know, he pushed her by lack of involvement. Mm-hmm. But the, I don't, I never found any, anything that showed that he um, overtly condoned it. That uh-huh. being said, he certainly made it uh, easy for her to do. He never, one of the most poignant um, lines uh, that I found that MFK Fisher wrote was something along the lines that, um, I asked my husband if I should go go to Europe with Tim Parrish, and he told me yes. And you could just tell that at some level she didn't want him to say yes. She wanted yes, him to stand up yeah. for her and for their relationship yeah. and to say, no, I don't want you to go. I want you to stay here with me. But he told her to go. I might have just, I might have made those assumptions right. then. Well, and I mean, I think that it's it's such a complicated, weird, ultimately, triangle because so what happens is she goes she goes abroad with Tim and yet she's she's writing these letters back to Al and Al all of a sudden becomes very needy. I mean, it's interesting because we just talked about how he had no interest in her and no interest Mm -hmm. in fostering this relationship. Well, no interest until he thought he was going to lose her. And then all of a sudden, that kind of early fire, whatever that was that it initially compelled him to sort of desire to possess MFK Fisher, came back. And he writes these, I mean, so sob story letters, um, so full of kind of like florid romantic prose that it was hard for me to pick out which, you know, snippets to use in the book. Mm-hmm. You know, I love you, my darling. I miss you, my darling. I can't live without you. I've been waiting all day to read your letter kind of um, kind of prose. And she doesn't ever tell him that she's taken, you know, that she's really started this affair with, with Tim. Um, so they come back to the United States MFK Fisher moves back in with her husband, kind of resumes her marriage, and Tim goes to the East Coast to visit his family for a while, and then he sends a letter that uh, invites uh, the two of them, Tim and or Al and Mary Frances, to come and live in Switzerland. And I think MFK Fisher says, to my shock and dismay, Al decided he wanted to go. So the two of them go to live with Tim in Switzerland, and to use another MFK Fisher line, unsurprisingly, it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Al ended up leaving. Now, Um, at that point, mm -hmm. where is Tim's wife? Tim's wife, he married a dramatically younger woman. I think he was, you know, 30, 30... 
in his early 30s and she was in her teens and she became a Samuel Goldwyn girl. She was a starlet. She had, mm. you know, designs on the, the big screen. And so she had actually seemingly convincingly gone away on tour and was away on tour when when that when they all went to switzerland well when the ori- original affair the original started affair. and and then when she came back and found out that t- her husband had taken up with with this friend of hers she kind of brushed it off and said it's okay because i had an affair too you know so she went off with i think his name was john weld her name was Gigi parish and she no but that's right uh so Gigi ended up marrying john weld um and i think they stayed married for a long time mm-hmm. and um tim went to switzerland and uh then mary francis and al followed and they lived there together for about two months and then al took off and apparently traveled europe um mm-hmm. for a month or two and then went to smith which is where he was a professor and basically until he died mm-hmm so and and Mary Frances and Tim stayed on um they had this I went to see it it's a beautiful astonishingly beautiful plot of land oh you went to see I it did. Oh, gosh, I did I did it was so one lucky. of my best the best parts of my book research was um using MFK Fisher prose to kind of weave my way through Switzerland and find what I think you know is in fact the plot of land and it's um overlooking Lake Geneva um, beautiful terraced vineyard property, uh, and they lived there, you know, very happily until mm-hmm. he got sick. Which How was many years was that that they lived there? Not they not ultimately were not not there very long. Yeah. I think they were there about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they'd been there just about a year when Tim got this um, had this amazingly problematic blood clot in his leg that mm-hmm. dude resulted in his leg being amputated mm-hmm. and started them on a whole different trajectory of doctor's visits and and pain and illness and suffering. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to take another little musical interlude here on Mouthful. We'll be right back. You're listening to an archive episode of Mouthful that originally aired on April 10th, 2011 on KRCB-FM Radio 91. Some may reach for the stars, others will in behind bars. What the future has in store, no one ever knows before. Yet we would all like the right to find the key to success. That elusive ray of light that will lead to happiness. Tomorrow is my turn, no more doubts, no more fears. Tomorrow is my turn when my luck is returning. All these years I've been learning to save fingers from burning. Tomorrow is my turn, no more doubts, no more fears. Tomorrow is my turn to receive without giving. Make life worth a living, now it's my life I'm living in my only concern for tomorrow. Tomorrow is my turn Whenever summer is gone There's another to come You can't stop years drifting But even if you want to try Time may help you forget all that has happened before, but honey, it's too late 
to regret what is gone will be no more tomorrow is my turn no more doubts no more fears tomorrow is my turn when my luck is returning all these years i've been learning to save fingers from burning tomorrow is my turn to receive without giving to make life worth living now it's my life i'm living in my only concern It's Mouthful. It's Michelle Anna Jordan live in the studio with author Anne Zimmerman, uh, who has written a lovely book, An Extravagant Hunger, The Passionate Years of MFK Fisher. Tell me about the subtitle. Well, you know, it is not a um, quote-unquote typical biography, which would start with MFK Fisher's birth and end with her death in 1992. I was really compelled to write about what I felt were her most passionate years. And all of MFK Fisher's work is great, but... I often feel like the work that people go back to again and again and again is that early work. Uh, Serve it forth, uh, consider the oyster, how to cook a wolf, gastronomical me, the books that were bound into the art of eating with Mm -hmm. an alphabet for gourmets. And those works were written astonishingly quite quickly uh, in the space of about five or seven years Mm -hmm. uh, when she was in her 30s. And... And that, that I felt was her most passionate time. It was a time filled with a lot of despair and a lot of sadness. You know, Tim, Tim Parrish ended up committing suicide. Her brother committed suicide. But, um, but it was when her, that longing that you were talking about and that desire seems to show through most clearly on the page, at least for me. So I really wanted to kind of explore the life behind that that mm-hmm. work that kind of gave her her early voice, that p- propelled her to being this legend of, of food and of writing in, in America. And <laughs> so it's the passionate years. And it's interesting because I completely agree with you. I think you've absolutely nailed it. And yeah. for me, even though I love all of those books, for me, the height of her power comes down to actually a single chapter. Oh, wow. In here. The, gas- the gastronomical me, the flaw. Yeah, I can, I can even barely say the chapter without choking. I say the name of the chapter, and I've read it out loud at, at various events, and I always get choked yeah. up. It's so, it's so beautifully written and so full of both love and pain mm-hmm. and longing and foreboding and the sense of impending doom that as if what's happening with her and Tim Mm -hmm. is also mirrored by the fascism spreading throughout um, Europe. It's, and then to learn that she dictated that book, she dictated that book. And and she wrote it while pregnant, quite pregnant, you know, sort of on this deadline to give birth is, you know, astonishing. Yeah. It was, it was amazing to me. And that book is always amazing to me, the way it holds up and people, you know, one of the, there are a couple of dirty little secrets about, uh, in the food world. Um, one of them is, and I guess this isn't such a secret. Everyone, everyone wants to be blessed by being compared to her. Right. Of course. Everyone does. Of course. And then so often people will confess very quietly, 
you know, I've never actually read MFK Fisher. That's one confession. And the other confession is sort of this uppity. Well, you know, she actually didn't know very much about food, did she? And it's like both missing, you know, everyone's sort of missing it. Well, and people ask me uh, one question that I've been getting quite often was, um, did she like to cook? And, you know, I never I never met her. But my hunch is that she really liked to eat and that she did cook and she was a very capable cook. But, you know, she wasn't Julia Child. She wasn't writing these, you know, manuals dissecting recipes. And, you know, that was a told that's a whole different gig um and i believe that she loved to eat and that she was this sensual passionate person and i think that it's really interesting in food culture today that um you know we're expect you know once again we're expected to do it all you know that you would want you would need to be both an eater and a cook like i think it's okay to be an eater and Mm -hmm. i think that you know there's a lot of pleasure had from food and um as someone that cooks a lot i know that Right or wrong, sometimes I get the most pleasure from the meals I do not make myself because the meals that I make myself, I know all the different components and I know what went into it and I know the time. And by the sometimes by the time I sit down, I just think, okay, now now you eat. But there is something about sitting and just being able to take the pleasure and the mindfulness of mm-hmm. just eating, and that's I think what she did best. I think, I think that so. that's a gift. I think so too. And I know when I cook, I've cooked. Prof- I used to cook professionally. I don't anymore. Um, very rarely but when i do the sensual part of it is the cooking yes it's not the enjoying of the meal right now that's a very good point that's um, interesting. And if, I, if i have people over for dinner or something i cook in a much different way and i try to cook in such a way that we're at the table and we spend hours around the table mm-hmm. and it's the enjoying of it but it, it's two such different things mm-hmm. and um anyway back to those first those first five books and that yes. that's when you wanted the to passionate write about her. years yes. yes the passionate years i'm wondering um Got a, I had a very precise question. Let's see if I can... Oh, I know what I was going to say was... It was interesting. She was well-known, but not hugely right. well-known mm-hmm. until... Among, not among friends. Um, as they were. As they were, As yes. they were. When As they were came out, she, when she was she was living in Glen Ellen when mm-hmm. she wrote that. That's what brought people to her door. And if I did my math right, I think she was like 73 by then. Well, so it's interesting... Um, so what I think happened, you know, she, she wrote those five books um, mm-hmm. and then had a child in 1943 and then had another child in fairly quick succession. And all of a sudden her world was totally different. She was a mother and not just a mother, but um, often a single mother. And she was also caring for both of her parents mm-hmm. in the final stages of their life. And it was the 50s. You know, food was different. It was this post-war world. And I think that she was just really bogged down with the responsibilities of working motherhood. She was still writing. But if I showed you some of those articles from House Beautiful, you would not think that they were MFK picture pieces. You know, if they're... Yeah, I went and found so many of those. You wouldn't... She was writing for money. She was writing for money. And there's nothing... There's no shame there. But um, I think it wasn't until some of those responsibilities lifted a little bit. And she did, you know, move up to here to to wine country. and, And it was at the same time that Americans started really starting starting to go abroad and have similar experiences to the mm-hmm. ones that she had and food and wine was coming alive in Northern California. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, here we have this person that, that has this beautiful voice and all this experience. And then I, you know, I wasn't there, but my feeling is, is, is exactly what you said. There's, she was essentially just rediscovered and then flocked to. 
right. in droves. This, like this huge path to mm-hmm. her door. And then, you know, she she had been writing the entire time, but I think she had a lot of ambivalence about, quote unquote, food writing. Mm-hmm. I think she wanted to be a novelist, probably at her heart of hearts, or, or at least writing short stories and fiction. And But I think she also realized that writing about food, um, she was good at it. She and, was very good, I thought, at writing about the moment, mm-hmm. exactly what was going on and observing the moment, whether that moment was eating Joey. We have a, we have another guest in the studio, and he, he's, I think he's disagreeing with us. <laughs> um, I, I think of some of her books about the south of France, uh-huh. um, A Map of Another Town, um, and then, what was the title of the one about Provence? There were just two kitchens in Provence. Two kitchens in yeah. Provence. Um, and there's one, anyway, it, and that's where I discovered her. I yeah. discovered her completely separate from anything to do with food. Interesting. I was in Southern California, like mm-hmm. you were, and I had, was spending the night with um, a, a friend and her mother and my two little girls. Mm-hmm. And I woke up very, very early on January 1st. And... I didn't want to wake anyone up, so right. I went to the bookshelf. And I, at that point, my girls were very young, and I really wanted to go to Provence. Mm-hmm. To, wanted to take them and go to college in Aix-en-Provence. And I, there must have been Provence in the title, but mm-hmm. I pulled this book off the shelf, and here was this first-person narrative about a woman with two living girls. with yeah. two little girls in Provence. And I just gobbled it up, but I didn't even note the name of the author. Right. Because um, like, two hours later, we were in the car going to Disneyland. Right. And I sort of forgot time. about it. And then much later, discovered her. But, yeah, that sing- single motherhood. And she, you know, it'd be, an in- it'd be interesting to see your take. I know you stopped at 1943, but I think there's territory to explore. Definitely. Beyond. I mean, it, you know, there's... Uh but it's but in a way it, it would be territory for a whole different book and a whole different sure. exploration because I do think that she um you know, there is still an, an element of just sort of passion and fantasy involved in my book. There's a lot of pain, but you know, it is this sort of like amazing story of this person that was so aware of their tastes and so aware of their pleasures that goes to France and learns more about food and wine there and falls in and out of love and you know, it's sort of um every woman's fantasy at some level to be able to kind of explore the world in this fashion mm-hmm. and then you know what happens next is is a different fantasy of like how do you how do you be a wife and how do you be a daughter and how do you be a parent and a working parent and a working mm-hmm. writer and I, I I agree with you completely that those years are ripe for exploration but I didn't feel like you know they were right to be bundled into this I think book. you ended I like the, it was a different chapter oh I agree with you completely I, I love that you focused on that time period um, you know, I think it does change when she has her first child. Mm-hmm. I think everything changes everything then. Changes. But her writing in particular, that that bundle of writing, those first books are are all of a piece. Yes. They're all of a voice. Mm-hmm. And then her voice, she doesn't lose her voice, it but changes. the voice, it, it changes and it takes on certain other things. Mm-hmm. And so much of her writing is beautiful after that. Um, and it's very tinged with sadness, but sadness of a different kind. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I'm curious about, and yes. this is, time's going so fast, <laughs> um, how much, you know, how much exploration did you do about her mother and father, two huge figures in her life? Sure. Um, you know, it is so funny because I, um, 
what happens in France and what happens with these lovers that she has is so exciting that um, occasionally her family gets a little underplayed. And it's true. Um, they were the initial influence. She had this fascinating family. Her um, her father, Rex Kennedy, was the publisher, owner and publisher of the Whittier News in Southern California. And her mother, Edith, was his um his wife, her, you know, she was upper crust. She was came from a wealthy family, very well-bred, very well-traveled and well-read for that time. Uh, and what was interesting was that Edith's mother, Grandmother Holbrook, lived with the family for much of MFK Fisher's childhood. And Grandmother Holbrook um, belonged to a religious school of thought that, that believed that food, um, if you ate spicy uh, interesting food. It could compel people, especially young children, to act out in dangerous ways. And so on the Kennedy dinner table, when Grandmother Holbrook was around, which she lived with them was most of the time, uh, was very bland, very under-seasoned foods. And then Grandmother Holbrook would go away and Edith would pull out the cake pans and bake cakes and roast big cuts of meat and Rex would pull out a wine bottle and there would be kind of like this bacchanal when Grandmother Holbrook was gone. And so the influence of those three people and uh, this additional woman, Aunt Gwen, who sort of took care of yeah, the Aunt children. Gwen. And she was she was very important. But, you know, this kind of triumvirate of, of power, this, you know, father, mother, and mother-in-law kind mm-hmm. of vying for, you know, attention and who was going to be in control of the dinner table was yeah. an, an extraordinarily um, influential force really bouncing back and forth I think you know I think if there was one thing that made MFK Fisher aware of her desires and of her hungers early and sort of primed her for the rest of her experiences it was that you know she saw Mm -hmm. this mother that was ambivalent about the kitchen and hired cooks to come in and take care of her family and she saw a grandmother that only wanted to eat bland foods and parents that then would go out to dinner and come back and explain in great detail everything that they had eaten and it just allowed her to hone in so soon, so young, on this this human desire, this human hunger. Yeah. Now that you've finished the book, how do you feel? I mean, how did, how did going this deeply into someone's life, uh, particularly such a passionate period in someone's mm-hmm. life and sad... How do you feel on the other side of it? Uh, I'm having a great time. I'm having so much fun talking about the book. I wasn't Mm -hmm. sure I was going to like this part um, because it feels kind of exposing for me to Uh to, to do all of this. But I'm having a great time. And I think it's been really interesting. Um, You know, I got so busy uh, probably really for the last year revising the book. You know, it took a huge amount of energy. And I was definitely starting to eat all of my meals in front of the computer and get really bogged down in my writing process. And I think the most interesting part about talking about her and her influence on me has been reminding myself of of what I said, you know, kind of when we started that the eating is something you do for yourself and it should be Mm -hmm. something that you step away from the computer and the phone and, you know, whatever it is you're working on and you sit down and you have something nice and and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And that's really in this kind of more frenetic time I'm traveling a lot and, and in front of people a lot I'm trying to remember that that that's yeah, to very take to take care of myself and to enjoy it mm-hmm. so um she's you know she's so applicable her words are so applicable to the modern eater I really believe that and I hope that the book will inspire people to not only want to know more about her but to go back to her writing and sort of remember that she is this voice in in American prose that I think in food culture today has a lot of wisdom yeah i absolutely agree and i i I hope that that's what happened i hope people will go out and pick up serve it forth or write these days 
There's a lot of wisdom in how to cook a wolf. Absolutely. So much. Absolutely, which she wrote during World War II. Sure. And then, you know, to really experience her in the full range of her power, the gastronomical me. Yeah. It's it's just exquisite. I always tell people, or what I've been telling people recently is to get, you know, to get a copy of The Art of Eating. And, you know, when you're you're cooking some night and you have that four minutes while you're waiting for the the egg to boil or whatever, you can open it up to any page and you're going to find something in the art of eating that will speak to you. So it's a great dip in, dip out kind of book. Yeah, that's a great advice. What do you think is next for you once you finish your book tour? Ah, that's a great question. I think I'm poking around looking for another project. So yeah. if anybody has any ideas, <laughs> let me know. You know, I um, maybe more MFK Fisher. I'm working right now on kind of compiling some essays that she wrote into new. Uh, one is a book about her writings on wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will that's still a ways off from being published, and then another um, that's coming out from Counterpoint fairly soon is uh, just a lesser known, kind of less um, less quote unquote popular MFK Fisher pieces that we're putting back out into the world. Oh, good! So that's really that's yeah, and that's called that's Love in a Dish. Love in a Dish. Yep. Oh, it's a so, great title. Yep, so Who's your up. editor there at uh, Counterpoint? I was working with a man named Bob Ickes and Jack uh-huh. Shoemaker, too, okay. who's, you know, the the man, the myth, the legend. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, do you have any book signings coming up in the Bay Area? Any I appearances? do. I do. I was thinking I should mention those, especially for, for readers in wine country. On April 21st, I will be at Copperfields in Napa. And on June 3rd, I will be at the Book Passage in Corte Madera. Oh, great. And what day, June? June 3rd, Friday, June oh. 3rd. Um, in between now and then, I'm going to Portland and Seattle, if you know anyone in Portland and Seattle. And I have, uh, oh, and on uh, this coming Thursday, the 14th of April, I'll be at Mrs. Dalloway's in the East Bay. Mm-hmm. So I have a website written by az.com, and it lists all my readings and kind of tracks what I'm up to. I'm trying to put photos and... So the website is written by az.com. Yep. Written by az.com. And I know that there's an event coming up at the Bouverie Preserve. Yes. Are you going to be there? I will be there. It is on uh, May 14th, May 14th, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to I'm doing something. I may be moderating. I'm not the panel. I'm not we sure. We shall meet again. Yes, I, I just got an invitation and I could not be more excited. I've never I've never crossed that bridge, you know, that So you haven't seen I've Last seen House it, but I've distance. never yes, there's those uh, for those of you that haven't seen it, there's these very foreboding signs that sort of say trespass at risk of own death and I just never felt like I was that risky yeah and then there's the cattle guard you have to drive over yeah but nothing would happen to you oh well you know it's always better to go in with friends yes so april um may 14th and i'll be writing about uh, that event which is open to the public i'll be writing yeah. about that event in one of my columns so that people can get tickets everyone should and, come. Uh, yeah it's, it's very just, special i mean you know it's yeah. quite like i just said it's quite the honor to, to be invited uh yeah. and that place last house is not a place that very many people have gotten to see no so no, and it's I don't people to come. No, last house isn't going to be open, is it? No, but just just going you can walk into, by it. you know into yes. the, this kind of special place that it's was an so amazing special estate. and inspiring it's, to her. Yeah, yeah it's an a, amazing estate, and and when she died, you know, her ashes were scattered mm-hmm. at the um, waterfall there yes that, uh, and i almost just used the word sacred and i wasn't sure if it was too too lofty a word but it's um i'm very i'm very excited to kind of get this view of this very yeah and you have to make sure you place. see the bell okay i'll that, make you show it to me yeah you have to see the bell because you know she had written about that bell mm-hmm. and on the day of her memorial service david bouvery went out and rang the bell and came back 
and there was a phantom ring. Really? Long after he was already back. It wow. had to be at least a full minute, maybe more than a minute. There was this other resounding peal. And I think half the people in the room cracked up. Well, I mean, this may sound crazy, but I just believe that she is, you know, she's just present. You know, I think that she's present in food culture and present in, mm-hmm. in writing today. And um, I, agree. I hope she would be happy with the book. So. I, I think she, I know that she would be. And I'll tell you, you know, um, Hillary Clinton might have talked out loud to um, Eleanor Rose. About, but I often find myself talking to Mary uh, Francis. Yeah, that's and the, great. The book, Anne Zimmerman, and an extravagant hunger, the passionate years of MFK Fisher from Counterpoint Press. It's really wonderful, and you can go to the website, writtenbyaz.com. It's a great title. And I wish you just mountains of success, and Thank maybe you'll you. come back to Mouthful sometime. Yeah, this sometime. is a lot of fun. I'll definitely come back. Okay, great. And you come back, too. Uh, check us out next Sunday at 7 for another episode of the Wine Country's Most Delicious Hour, Mouthful. I'm Michelle Anna Jordan. Have a great week. And that concludes our archive episode for this evening. It originally aired on April 10th, 2011. You can find more episodes of Mouthful on our website, norcalpublicmedia.org, or as a podcast on iTunes. Selling out, who can blame them? Wine to cash, crop growing strong.